So the US would probably do turkey for Christmas, the UK do geese, but the Aussies do a shrimp on the barbie. It's the French equivalent, is it? It is, yeah. It's a really Christmassy recipe. In fact, I, I think this is my fifth Christmas here and I've never had anything else. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. Last week we chatted all things Christmas food traditions here in France and we touched on briefly the topic for today's podcast, the capon or chapon. Well, pronunciation is just one of the myriad things to discuss when it comes to this delicious ingredient that's traditionally eaten at Christmas time. For our final episode of the season, I wanted to pick something that was typically French to have on Christmas Eve or day to celebrate with family and friends, and the chapon is certainly it, or capon. We'll get back to that. To chat to us today on Fabulously Delicious, we have an Australian who trained to be a chef in London, married a Frenchman, started a young family here in France, and became known as the real Emily in Paris. Emily Gordeschamp, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I wanted our listeners to get to know you a bit better. And so uh, before we talk about all things Capon, so to start with, you have a lovely young family, three kids and a sausage dog. What's the dog's name? Uh, her name's Noisette. That means hazelnut. Yes. How did that come about? Noisette, that's a fabulous name. In France, they have a letter every year. And so you're supposed to use that letter to give your dog a name. So when we bought her, it was the letter N. Um, and I was not actually that keen on following the rules, but my husband and daughter definitely wanted to. So it's it's Nozette. Right. Well, that's fabulous. We didn't know about that rule when we got our little Louis. So um, we just called him Louis because he was French and we just thought, oh, Louis a good French name. I was in a cafe once and a waiter brought me a coffee randomly. And I, you know, I said, I haven't ordered anything. He goes, you did. You, you shouted Nozette. <laughs> I said I was shouting at my dog under dog. the table. <laughs> That's hilarious. But I'll have a glass uh, of wine while you're here. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, what did Noisette get up to once uh, before you had a dinner party? Oh, we had. She's she's a little bit cheeky. Her her nose is stronger than than her self control. So we had set the table. We were having guests over, and I, you know, we were kind of doing an apéro dinatoire. So you know, just snacky things and lots of nice wine and cheese and charcuterie and smoked salmon and everything was on the table. And the guests knocked at the door, and in the say three minutes that I went to open the door and welcome our guests and give them a glass of wine, Noisette climbed on the table and ate absolutely everything. So <laughs> we had to order Uber Eats. she's quite good i mean she's a miniature sausage dog so she's quite acrobatic if there's food involved (laughs) so you live in paris with three kids and a dog how different do you think life is living in paris to brisbane where you grew up if you had three kids and a dog living in brisbane oh massively i mean i think the biggest difference that strikes me almost every day is that we don't have a car So my childhood in Brisbane was fantastic, but it was filled with driving from this activity to that activity to this school to that school. Uh, And my poor mom, she just spent all her time in the car. And now it's, you know, we don't have that over here. You know, we always use public transport. Everything in France is, everything in Paris is organized to be close by. So your kids get sent to the closest school and the closest creche. So in the morning, you know, my husband takes the two little kids on the pram and drops them off on his way to work. 
Um, and for me to pick them up, all I have to do is walk through the park, which is perfect. Um, so that's a big difference. Uh, otherwise, the school system is slightly different. In Brisbane, there's quite a big focus on pub, uh, on private schools, whereas here that's not really a thing. Um, there are private schools, but it's 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 not the same. Um, and they don't, it, you know, in Brisbane, the private schools kind of do all the activities and things like that, and that's why they're really interesting to parents. But here, that's not uh, not part of it at all. So, I mean, our kids are in public the public system, and they absolutely love it. Um, and the activities are different. So, there's sort of less activities available um, via the school system, but they the kids do them all sort of in their spare time. Um, so the kids have Wednesday afternoons off because French parents really respect their weekends and don't want them to be filled with ballet or soccer class all the activities take place on Wednesday afternoon so <laughs> <That's fantastic>. <laughs> <laughs> so on weekends everyone's you know free to go to their country house or wherever they want to go for the weekend um, of course I'd never thought about that 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 would be when everybody leaves to go to the country house yeah what would kids normally do they wouldn't be able to go to soccer and stuff but instead yeah. you just get Wednesdays off you get Wednesday afternoons off um, and a lot of parents actually a lot of working parents get Wednesday afternoons off if they want to to sort of, you know, spend that afternoon with the kids, which is nice. Your Instagram profile is the real Emily in Paris. I actually really love the show Emily in Paris, I've got to say. What do you think of it? Um, some of it was filmed in our area. So I remember walking along just across the road from where her apartment is one day and I was like, wow, that's a beautiful new florist. When did that open? And I was sort of admiring all these gorgeous, you know, new shops that had opened up and turns out they were all fake. It was all a scene for the show. <laughs> and they've since, you know, reverted back to their to their original, you know, one. I think the florist in the show is normally like this tiny copy shop where you can go and, you know, make photocopies and use as an internet cafe. Um, I like the costumes. I think they're really fun. That's really interesting. And I guess... It's just you have to take it with a pinch of salt. Like it's not reality. And I think that's why it had so much success because people were missing Paris and suddenly here was this like fantastic, engaging, uh, flamboyant show that people could, you know, it's like eye candy. Yes. And so I've heard it mentioned on a few podcasts that I've listened to that with subjects has come up that they talk about it being escapism TV and it more or less is that Paris in a way I don't know about you but when we lived there for four years it is a bit of escapism Paris it is a bit unreal to us Aussies don't you think oh definitely I mean when you're taking the bus you know through the Louvre courtyard to to go to work every day it, it, <laughs> but I think you know no one's going to watch that show and think oh wow I bet that's what life's really like I bet you know I should wear six inch heels on the metro every morning um <laughs> I think people understand and it's like you know it's like any tv show did the character of friends really you know have that amazing apartment rent controlled in New York no so were you the real Emily in Paris before the show came out or did you change it no, I started a new account. Um, before that, I just had, you know, I have a private account that's sort of for friends and family. And then I decided that I would start a new account to show because everyone kept texting me, oh, my God, there's this TV show. It's all about your life, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, 
Yeah. I mean, technically it is about a girl called Emily in Paris, but my life is definitely not like that. <laughs> and then I thought I would do a bit of, you know, behind the scenes, like you live in Paris, but there's still bills to pay and laundry to do and things like that. But actually I'm a bit hypocritical because when I flick back through my photos, I'm like, well, it's not as much behind the scenes as I had intended when I first started it. 30, you decided that you wanted to career change and decided to become a chef. Where did you study to become a chef? So I went to a school in London. I was living in London at the time and it was a school called Leeds Food and Wine, Leeds School of Food and Wine. Um, and it was set up by Prue Leith, who is a judge on Great British Baking Show or Great British Bake Off, I think it's called in, in England. Um, so that was great. And actually a girl I went to school with works on the show now. So, yeah, that's really fun. Uh, and it was really interesting. It was a year-long course, um, so it was pretty intense. And they taught us, you know, you start off with the basics and then just build from there. So it was great. I absolutely loved it. So why the change? Um, why not? I was, I'd been, you know, I'd been a model agent um, for a couple of years and then at the time I made the change, I was working for a Chelsea football player and I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do next but I thought that, you know, this course looked amazing and I really, really wanted to do it so I made it work. You were a model agent. You, you, I... I can't remember you ever asking me to do any shows for you. <laughs> Your contract's in the mail. Okay, fabulous. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I worked at an agency called Premier in London for, for years. The Leaf School you mentioned was founded by Prue Leaf. She is an actual food hero of mine. I love her. The Great British Venue was one of my favourite, or is one of my favourite shows on TV, and she used to be on that before the Great British Break Off. Did you ever get to meet her? I did meet her once briefly. So by the time I went, she had the school had been sold, uh, but I did meet her at an event afterwards, uh, and she was really nice. Do you miss living in London? Not really. I was ready to leave London before I met my husband. So I was planning actually to move back to Australia. I was going to move to Sydney. And then I met him and had to, you know, call my mom and say, actually, um, I'm not coming home anymore. I'm moving to Paris with a guy that I met online two months ago. Of course so. you are, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so she was a bit worried. Um, and he was a widower. So it's, it was full on. Like I moved over here and sort of, you know, went right into mom life. And, and I really had to figure things out when I got here. I didn't speak any French. I didn't know what I was going to do for a job. I, I really just jumped in. Does hubby cook at home? He does if I tell him exactly what to make and with what ingredients. <laughs> uh, he's very good at making things. turn out kids. for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, because I have things bought specially with things in mind to make. Uh, so he does check first, you know, before he uses the, the truffle butter or something that I don't have it earmarked for a recipe. Uh, he's very good at making the kids' meals. Yes. So, you know, plain pasta and steamed carrots, that's his specialty. <laughs> Fabulous. His mum is the person that got you into French food. Is that right? Yeah. So she she's a great cook. Um, they live in the countryside about two hours. Oh, sorry, that's my watch. They're in the countryside about two hours outside Paris and um, – Going there is just fantastic. You know, there's always a beautiful big lunch and a beautiful big dinner and 
everyone's relaxed and takes their time and and that's where I really sort of got into she makes a lot of you know the classics there's always an apple tart or a roasted roasted um guinea fowl or you know things like that well that actually leads me to my next question which was what's your favorite thing that she cooks oh um she makes a really good cherry clafoutis I love a good curry for clafouti. Okay, where is she? Where is that again? Two hours north of Paris. You <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Next trip. It's Christmas time here in France. So, with a young family, how different is Christmas here in France to when you grew up in Oz? Uh, I think there's a lot more Christmassy activities that seem to be going on here. There's, you know, the Christmas markets and the ice skating and. All those sort of things are always happening. Um, I don't really remember doing those in Australia. But apart from that, I mean, it's just, you know, the excitement's the same, the build-up's the same. Everyone has an advent calendar and, you know, and actually real Christmas tree here, which is amazing. Ours gets delivered next week and and got a little bit over-enthusiastic and I didn't ask them to measure it and I don't think it's going to fit in our living room. And our ceiling's 2.7 metres, so <gasps> okay. I've really oh gone God, That's a big tree. Yeah. If it's going to be big, oh, my gosh. Okay, I took well. a photo with my daughter <clears throat> next to it and I keep sort of trying to eyeball how high she is versus how high the tree Christmas is. Christmas tree's going to be. Ho, 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 you're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways you can do this. The first, and by far possibly the most important, is to follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, leave a review and a rating. A five-star rating would be fabulous. Merci beaucoup. Financially, you can support Fabulously Delicious by becoming a Patreon. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can become a Patreon member and receive exclusive content just for you. And at the same time, support the making of Fabulously Delicious. Thanks for listening. And so on to today's topic, the capon. My first question is around how you pronounce it. So is it, it's spelt C-H-A-P-O-N. That's not how it's pronounced, is it? Well, I think my in-laws say chapon. They do. See, we had Camille um, from French Today on last week, and her pronunciation is a capon, so she doesn't pronounce the H. I'm thinking back, I think they do, but maybe I've just invented that. I don't know. Well, no, because I thought it was the chapon too, but then I heard other people tell me it's a capon. So, Well, in the USA, it's called capon because they don't have the H in the spelling. Mm. Okay, well, let's go with whichever. We'll go with whichever. You can, you'll can. you say what you say and I'll say what I say and somebody, people can leave comments about what's <laughs> right or what's not right. Please okay. don't invite Please. people to leave comments. Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> Love comments. What? So what is a chapon? So it's basically a castrated rooster is the simple answer. Um, whether chemically or physically castrated. So they do that before they sort of um, have any hormonal changes. And I don't know why they started. There's a few different answers. Um, It was to stop roosters from fighting because once they're castrated, you can keep them in together, whereas beforehand, otherwise you can only have one rooster in 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 a sort of one enclosed space. 
Um, and basically because they never go through, I guess, their teenage hormone phase, um, the, the meat, roosters can be quite tough, which is why people use them for, you know, coco vin or things like that, that you have to cook for quite a while. Um, so this, the meat is more, is more fatty and it's more tender and, and they grow into a bigger bird. They're, they're given quite a long lifespan before they're prepared for, for eating. So, yeah. And so it's called caponization. It is. See, I'm very, that's apparently the term for neutering or castrating a rooster. It does make me feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about it. How is the capon different taste-wise to a normal chicken? Um, it's a bit more intense of a flavour. It, it still tastes quite sort of, you know, chickeny. Um, it's definitely not gamey like a guinea fowl or a pheasant or uh, a pigeon. Um, it's just a really, I think it's just a really nice size bird to do for Christmas. And unlike turkey, it doesn't tend to get as dry. So you don't really have that panic about, uh, because it is still quite a fatty bird. Um, so you don't really have that panic about, you know, how you're going to cook it and keep it dry. It doesn't need a lot of basting. It's usually cooked at quite a low temperature. So it's almost like you're slow roasting the bird for Christmas. Obviously, we eat it at Christmas, but is that the only time you eat a chapon? Uh, I've had it a few other times of the year, but it is mainly a Christmassy type bird, yeah. The US would probably do turkey for Christmas, the UK do geese, the Aussies do a shrimp on the barbie. It's the French equivalent, is it? It is, yeah. It's a really Christmassy recipe. Um, in fact, I, I think this is my fifth Christmas here and I've never had anything else. So I've never had anything else cooked for me. One year we made some quail um, and everyone was a bit shocked. So I think it, it is what you're supposed to serve on Christmas is a shuffle. Yeah, I think it's a very traditional um, French bird to serve. I mean, I had never seen it anywhere else before. I'd never looked for it, but I'd definitely never seen it anywhere else. I don't think you'd pick one up at the local butcher in Brisbane. Um, and I'd never, I'd never seen them in London either. So, I mean, London's very turkey or geese. Um, yeah. It's not cheap when you say you wouldn't get one at the local butchers in Brisbane. I remember when we lived in a second, I went to Rue de Nile and the butcher there, their chapon was 98 euro a kilo. Yeah. It's not a cheap anything, bird. Anything up from 50 euros a kilo is pretty normal. Because uh, it it's, it's a big bird, isn't it? Yeah. So usually if you want a little bit of leftovers, you do about three kilos for six to eight people. About Try and get about 400 grams per person. Um. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, it's not a cheap Christmas bird. But the French go all out for Christmas. I mean, they really try and it's their moment to shine with all the ingredients. Is it like a foie gras? Is the bird force-fed or anything like that? Or does it just naturally just eat a lot because it's been castrated? Uh, it's Okay, so that in Spain sometimes they're force-fed. They do have them in Spain. Um, in France they're not. It's not. That's not part of the, the plan for them. They get big because they 
they don't really stop growing after they're castrated. Uh, they keep, I mean, obviously they keep growing for a longer period of time and they get, I mean, some, you know, some chickens are, are killed quite quickly and Chapon get a longer time to sort of grow into a big bird. Yeah, I mean, so let's be clear, if you're buying a Chapon from a very, you know, sort of uh, from a good butcher, they should have had a longer life and have grown big naturally rather than being force-fed. I can't speak for all the farms, you know, providing them, um, and I'm sure there are some that are not doing it in the best possible way, but generally it's, yeah, it's because they're given opportunity to grow rather than being force-fed. I often hear people comment that sometimes the chicken's a bit gamey compared to what they have at home. So why is it that we have so many different types here and varieties here of chicken and poultry? Uh, I think there's people are rearing them in different ways. So this has also um, become a much bigger discussion in the UK. Uh, so, you know, farms started doing something called a 100-day chicken and it really made people question, well, okay, that doesn't seem that long, but actually that's, a you know, a really a long time in, 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 in commercial chicken farming to, to have a chicken from, you know, from hatching until it's being prepared to be eaten. Uh, so I think it really depends. I mean, here you can, I can go to the supermarket and buy a commercial chicken that, you know, just tastes like a chicken you'd get anywhere in Australia. Or I can go to the market and buy an organic chicken, which actually depending on who you buy from, you can get an organic chicken that is quite gamey and is quite delicate to cook because the, the chicken's really used its muscles. So it, it, it feels a lot tougher actually and you have to sort of, you know, cook it almost like a rooster. Um, and that's because it's used its muscles. So it all really depends on the lifestyle of the chicken. If the chicken's just sitting around doing nothing and doesn't have a lot of space to move, and it's not going to use its muscles and it's going to be, you know, quite soft. I don't know about you, but I never really noticed corn-fed chicken in Australia. We never really had that when I was growing up, whereas here you definitely notice there'll be just a, a white chicken and then there'll be a yellow one as well and it's been corn-fed. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> – I can't say that I notice a massive amount of difference to the taste, Uh but people do seem to have a preference here whether they like, you know, um, corn-fed chicken or not. To be honest, I'm, you know, semi pour moi. I have no preference. It's all the same. Just tastes like chicken. <laughs> Back to the capon. You briefly mentioned before about slow cooking. But, yes, how do you cook a capon? So first thing, bring it home from the butcher. can stay in the fridge for a couple of days depending on, on you know, what the butcher tells you. Um, and the best thing to do before you're going to cook it is let it come up to room temperature uh, before you start cooking it. So don't try and put a really cold piece of meat in the fri in in the oven. Um, that's not the best way to do it. Uh, make sure some chapon will can't will be quite authentic when they arrive. So be really clear with your butcher whether you want it to come with or without um, giblets or with or without a head. Um, so just explain to the butcher what you're comfortable with because a lot of people really like getting the extra bits because they use it for sauce. Um, anyway, and then it really depends how much, how much effort you want to put into it. So, 
I mean, there's, there's no shortage of recipes. Uh, it's really traditional to stuff it, um, with a mix of, you know, roasted chestnuts or, I mean, you'll, usually you always serve it with chestnuts at Christmas time. Um, but it's just, you can also either have them on the side or you can, can, you know, stuff it, um, with chestnuts, a mix of sausage meat, maybe with some foie gras, figs. Uh, there's a whole, there's, there's so many different stuffing recipes. I am not a huge fan of stuffing. I tend to roast it, um, empty. So just with maybe put a lemon and, and some herbs in there and a bit of garlic, which is really nice. Um, make sure that it's really well seasoned. So, you know, rub it with fat or with butter, with oil, with goose fat, um, whatever you want. I tend to keep the duck fat from when I'm, you know, making duck confit and just keep that in a jar in the fridge. And then when you're roasting other birds, you can use that to rub on um, and use it to do the potatoes as well, which is really nice. Yes. Well, speaking of that, what do you serve traditionally with a capon? So usually seasonal vegetables. Um, we always do fine green beans. We always do chestnuts. Uh, and then usually either sweet potato and potatoes, some carrots, um, anything you want. They're not that big. <laughs> My family's not that big on Brussels sprouts. I really like them. But yeah, I do too. Yeah. The French don't do the traditional English uh the same dishes. There's no bread sauce. Um, there's no Yorkshire puddings. They don't have any of that. And they tend to also be quite reserved with the gravy. There's not that sort of last minute panic of making a gravy and keeping the bird warm and et cetera, et cetera. They, they're very happy to just serve the, the juices from the bird, but it, it's generally not reduced down or thickened with, with corn flour or anything. It's, it's just sort of served as it is, um, which is really nice. Um, anyway, so you've got your bird, you've brought it up to room temperature, you've, you know, covered it in some fat, you've seasoned it really well with salt. Um, it's quite good if you can season inside as well. If you're going to stuff it, uh, ideally you would make sure that any meat going in the stuffing is already cooked just for health and safety reasons. Um, and that the stuffing is cold when you put it in. That's what we were taught. Um, everyone has their own sort of stuffing, stuffing rules. Uh, and then that's it. So one in a 160 oven. And there's two schools of thought. There's to have the oven at 200 for the first, either the first 20 minutes or the last 20 minutes of cooking um, just to make the skin a bit crispy. But I've done it both ways and I think it's fine either way. I generally do it 160 from the beginning and then just do it sort of high temperature right at the end. And that really stops the, you know, that way the 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 breast of the chicken doesn't, or the chapon doesn't get dry. Will you be cooking a, a chapon this year at Christmas? Uh, we're going to our in-laws, so we'll definitely be having one. Whether <laughs> whether I'm cooking it or not depends on whether uh, someone else will look after the children because uh, they love to sit on the um, on the kitchen floor when I'm cooking and you know really get under my feet. <laughs> Briefly before we go, I wanted to ask you about your food writing. You write actually for David Leibowitz, is that right? Yeah, so I met David when I moved to, to Paris, um, which is really nice. And I started off, you know, doing admin assisting for him. 
And then he invited me to write some um, some pieces for the blog, which is really good. Fabulous. I actually, you know, overpromised on how many I could write. <laughs> but now the kids are in crash, so I'm getting my groove back. Great. So what kind of things do you do you write for him? So at the moment, it's been mainly things about having kids in Paris or, you know, sort of more experiences in Paris, um, Christmas in Paris. Uh, but I have a few articles coming up. So there's one about shopping at the market. So trying to take this sort of the intimidation out of going to a beautiful French market so people can really go and enjoy the shopping experience uh, rather than being worried that they're, you know, saying the wrong thing or going to get shouted at. Uh, uh, I'm writing one about souffles, so trying to take the, the fear out of cooking a souffle, demystifying it. Uh, yeah, so things like that. I did a post for him on Anzac biscuits. Every time I go over there, he's, you know, explaining something new to me, a new ingredient or a new way of trying something. So finally, the question I ask everyone, what to you is the most fabulous thing about France? Ooh. Um, I mean, isn't everything fabulous about living in France? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, I would say so, but I think I'm biased. (laughs) Um... Super cliche. You could be whatever you want. Uh, the most fabulous thing about living in France is my husband always has a cold bottle of champagne in the fridge just in case. <laughs> now, just think if you'd married an Australian, you would have said that he had a whole case of VB <laughs> in the fridge just in case. So, yes, how fabulous is that? <laughs> my grandfather used to drink VB. <laughs> That is great. Emily, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you so much for teaching us all about the capon or chapon. We'll work that out later, what it really is. And um, I really hope you have a wonderful Christmas and the rest of uh, the year goes off fabulously. So thank you for joining us on Fabulously Delicious. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's been a pleasure. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.